0: Welcome to episode one of the Foreign Desk's second historical series. For three weeks, we'll examine historical events as the Foreign Desk might have covered them at the time, working only from the information which would have been available to us. This week, it's the Soviet Union's launch of Sputnik 1, the first man-made object to reach orbit in 1957. Henry Rhys Sheridan, Monocle24's New York correspondent, plays a fretful New Yorker watching the skies anxiously. Tom Nichols, staff writer at The Atlantic, expert on US-Soviet relations and author of several books, including Our Own Worst Enemy, plays a US foreign policy analyst. Mark Galliotti, political scientist, Russia expert and also author of several books, including the new Putin's Wars, plays our reporter in Moscow. And Linda Dawson, author, educator and former NASA engineer, plays an expert in all this newfangled space stuff. In our parallel universe, this episode broadcasts on Saturday, October 5th, 1957. It might be somewhere above you right now. It is Sputnik 1, a silver metal sphere perhaps twice the size of a soccer ball, orbiting our world every 90 minutes or so. Launched aboard a Soviet rocket sometime yesterday, it is the first man-made object to reach space. Sputnik is obviously a tremendous technological accomplishment. It may well portend an astonishing new era of space exploration, possibly even including, if doubtless many, many decades or even centuries hence, the realisation of such science fiction fantasies as putting people on the moon or exploring Mars. Back on Earth, in the here and now, however, Sputnik is a colossal propaganda triumph for the Soviet Union and a proportionately enormous embarrassment for the United States. The two superpowers are engaged in a fierce, perhaps even existential, contest of ideologies, each seeking to demonstrate that its own system is the superior engine of progress. The USSR has stolen a march. Possibly more seriously still, the launch of Sputnik is a security crisis for the entire democratic world. Sputnik itself is, as far as we know, harmless. But the Wright brothers' first aircraft wasn't armed either. What does Sputnik portend? How did the Soviet Union do it? And how, and how soon, can the United States respond? This is The Foreign Desk. As a result of intensive work by research institutes and designing
1: bureaus, the first artificial Earth satellite in the world has now been
0: created.
2: It gets the American people alarmed that a foreign country, especially an enemy country, can do this. we fear this. Today a new moon is in the
0: sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. It's frightening. Uh, we should find out what they're doing that we're not doing, and we should do something about it very quickly.
2: Russia getting into space really bothers me because it's making the Cold War between the Russia and the United States, you know, more intense. You know, there's going to be more tension.
0: You're listening to The Foreign Desk, I'm Andrew Miller. It is difficult to underestimate the discombobulation that Sputnik's launch has occasioned in the United States, where this seems to have been understood in some quarters as a real-life version of Orson Welles' infamous War of the Worlds radio broadcast of 1938, which induced many Americans to believe that they were being besieged by Martians. Henry Rhys Sheridan brings us this report from New York City.
2: Those beeps heard across the world last Friday ushered in a new era. They were transmitted by Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite. It was launched into space from Baikonur Cosmodrome in the Kazakh Soviet Socialist Republic. Sputnik now orbits the Earth once every hour and 36 minutes it flies 500 miles above our heads at a pace of 18,000 miles per hour. In the US, the satellite is being observed by institutions including the Astrophysical Observatory in Massachusetts and the Washington Naval Research Laboratory. These facilities are fitted with instruments that were intended to observe US satellites, the Eisenhower administration hoped to launch this year. Instead, they were frantically recalibrated over the weekend to find Sputnik as it raced over Earth. The technological achievement Sputnik represents can't be overstated. But in the United States, excitement over this technological feat was overshadowed by national anxiety. Do you admire the Russians for doing it or not?
3: No, definitely not. I said we should have been the first ones to have it. That such a thing. It gets the American people alarmed
1: that a foreign country, especially an enemy country,
3: can do this. Definitely alarmed.
2: What do you think about America not being able to do the same? Well,
3: if I was in military service and fell down on a job like that, I could stand a court martial. Somebody's falling
2: down on a job, badly. Sputnik itself is not thought to pose a direct military threat to the U.S. But the satellite reveals a gap in technological capabilities between the Soviet Union and the U.S. that has politicians and generals on edge. Two years ago, the civilian Vanguard satellite project was separated from military missile development. Now, some Pentagon officials are blaming that decision for delaying the US satellite program. President Eisenhower is now under enormous pressure to step up the nation's own satellite program in the immediate future.
0: The Soviet Union now has, in the combined category of scientists and engineers, a greater number than the United States. And it is producing graduates in these fields at a much faster rate. This trend is disturbing. Indeed, according to my scientific advisors, this is, for the American people, the most critical problem of all.
2: There are also calls for more far-reaching reforms. Sputnik is being held up as evidence of Soviet superiority in science and engineering. The Soviet Union is said to be training two to three times as many scientists per year as the United States. To close this gap, US leaders are calling for an overhaul of the nation's education system from elementary school right up to university level. Most of the anxiety of American leaders is over what the launch of Sputnik means in military terms. The intercontinental ballistic missiles that launched Sputnik into space are also capable of delivering a nuclear warhead anywhere in the world in a matter of minutes. Since its founding, the US has been insulated from the worst of Europe's wars by sheer geographical distance. The advent of intercontinental strike capabilities changes this. The arguments for American isolationism have been undermined for good. This year was meant to be one of scientific cooperation between the world's great powers. July 1st marked the start of the International Geophysical Year. It's a global project meant to intensify scientific interchange between East and West.
0: Seeking further knowledge of the universe, man turns to outer space with its almost limitless range and the uncharted depths of the oceans. Already, the no-man's land above us is being probed by the world's largest radio telescope erected at Jodrell Bank, Cheshire. This is part of Britain's contribution to the International Geophysical Year, when scientists of 64 nations will pool their knowledge. In this way, man will learn more of the climatic forces that govern his daily life. It will also be a stepping stone to man's greatest adventure yet, the conquest of the
2: moon." Both the US and Russia announced plans to launch satellites this year as part of the program. Indeed, the US even hoped to have input on the Soviet satellite launch, helping to determine the orbit path and contributing to observation efforts. In the event the Soviets launched Sputnik in secret, for all the diplomatic rhetoric, Sputnik proves how difficult it is to overcome the zero-sum logic of the Cold War. Such is the secrecy surrounding Sputnik that the Soviets are yet to even release an image of the satellite. Some newspapers are running pictures of the United States' as-yet-unlaunched Vanguard satellite to illustrate their reports on Sputnik. The awkward collage serves to admonish American leaders for their wishful thinking when it comes to the space race.
0: That was Henry Rhys Sheridan in New York City. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. It is almost certainly impossible to underestimate the sense of triumph at large in the Soviet Union this weekend. It has done what the United States so far has not, and the whole world knows it. I'm joined now on the phone by Mark Galliotti, our man in Moscow. Mark, for obvious reasons, it does seem a slightly self-defeating exercise to ask anyone in the Soviet Union if they can tell us what's going on in the Soviet Union, but what do we actually know about this thing that they have somehow put into orbit?
1: Well, essentially, it's a satellite that is a two-foot diameter, highly polished metal sphere with antennae that is currently orbiting the Earth at an altitude of between 130 and 580 miles. And it is putting out a constant radio signal, a ping, ping, ping. And the Russian authorities, the Soviet authorities, have been very, very keen to obviously present this in very technical terms, as a great triumph. But what we don't know at this stage is, is it just simply a football in in the space that is putting out a radio signal? Or is it something that actually has other capabilities? At present, that's not something that the Soviets are saying.
0: Has this come as a total surprise to everybody in Moscow? Had there been any advance notice that the Soviet Union was going to attempt to launch this thing?
1: There had been broad policy statements that's all absolutely nothing about the specific dates or whatever We knew that there was a Soviet space programme. We knew that it had been at Tur, which is their sort of new what they're calling a cosmodrome, but no, I can't help but feel that precisely they will be in k g in part for security reasons, but also in part in case it didn't work in which case they could just simply sort of brush this off as yet another test.
0: So since this thing has got airborne, as the whole world now knows, how has it been reported within the Soviet Union? If we look at, for example, what has been in the last few editions of Pravda, what kind of tone is that taking?
1: Well, again, it's interesting that it that also suggests that the Politburo were afraid that this really wasn't going to work. Because On the first day after the actual launch, on 5th of October, all we had was just a very, very low-key couple of columns in Pravda, not even sort of splashing on the front page, just simply giving a very, very sort of technical description that something had been launched. But after it had been sort of spinning around the earth for a day, they'd obviously decided that this was safe to splash, and therefore the whole front page of the 6th of October edition is devoted to this, and it's presented as, I mean, one can let you quote, it's a big victory. Russia has won the competition. Honor and glory to the leaders of Soviet science and technology. I mean, it is very much being put forward as some kind of clear signal, not just for the success of one particular experiment, but a crowning glory of Soviet science and technology. So I think this is it. They have decided it is safe now to use this, and they will use this not just simply as a way of presenting the Soviet Union as a sort of a forward-looking great technological superpower to the outside world, but also to the ordinary Soviet people, as a sense that after the, the sort of uncertainties of recent years, following the death of Stalin, the rise of Khrushchev and so forth, that in fact the Soviet Union is on the move and in the right direction.
0: Well, you mentioned Chairman Khrushchev, and I'm not sure how this works in the Soviet Union. Obviously, had the United States done this first, and as and when, I'm sure the United States does put something into war, but we will hear directly from President Eisenhower, but do you get anything like that where you are? Does Chairman Khrushchev appear on television, at least to the people who have televisions with the hammer and sickle banner behind him and proclaim this great triumph for the Soviet people?
1: No, there is an
0: interesting etiquette
1: here. This is all very much in the name of the Politburo. We all know that Khrushchev essentially has replaced Stalin as the dictator in charge of the Soviet Union. But the fiction is always that he is simply the first among equals and that this is a collective leadership for a collective nation. But of course, in practice, this is a massive personal triumph for him. And he will play this as much as possible. But above all, as I said, I think we will see Khrushchev trading on this with the outside world. Inside Russia, it's the Politburo.
0: It would be a mistake, I think, for us to think of this exclusively in what it means for the dynamics of the Cold War and how the United States might respond to this. And we will, of course, at any rate, be talking about that elsewhere in the program. But it is, as you suggested yourself, a considerable scientific accomplishment, whoever makes it. Do we know from this point, though, that what plans they have now beyond launching this apparently very basic projectile?
1: Well, look. it's worth noting that this is actually formally known as Sputnik 1, Satellite 1, which obviously implies that there's going to be a 2 or a 3 or whatever to come to follow. I think the issue is this. Look, they have been involved in a space race with the United States. The United States, in many ways, was much more ambitious about what it wanted to launch, which is why the Soviets could essentially steal a march. I mean, even if one looks at the R-7 rocket that launched it, I mean, essentially, this is a prototype for a long-range, heavy intercontinental ballistic missile that they had just simply hurriedly repurposed. So in some ways, this was a launch that was sort of in a hurry and on the cheap compared with the Americans. We can certainly expect this to continue because I think there is a widespread notion that space is something of a new frontier. It's a scientific one. I mean, again, if I can quote Pravda, says, you in know, October opened the boundless space for the development of science. But of course, where science goes, military technology also has a tendency to go. So I mean, I think that we can't expect that the Russians just simply threw all the resources that they did into this exploit, simply just for a one-off little triumph.
0: The obvious next step, I guess, and for all the reasons we've been discussing, it's impossible to know for sure what the Soviets are planning or how far along those plans may be, but do you think it would be a safe assumption that somewhere on some remote base right out in the Siberian vastness some or perhaps a few young Red Air Force pilots are being repurposed as astronauts?
1: One would presume so. I mean, we know that President Eisenhower has launched his Man in Space Soonest project with the slightly unfortunate acronym of MIS. And where the Americans seek to go, one presumes that the Soviets also feel that they have to go. But at present, again, if we're working on the same assumption as with Sputnik, what the Soviets tend to do is wait until they've had a success and then trumpet it, because they are very, very concerned about the appearance of what would happen if one of their experiments went badly.
0: Mark Galliotti in Moscow, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. If the Soviet Union is exultant, the United States is proportionately gloomy. I'm joined now by the US foreign policy analyst, Tom Nichols. Tom, first of all, it strikes me that there is a possible spectrum of responses here in the non-Soviet world. At one end of it, there could be absolute joy, incredulity and congratulation at this astonishing scientific accomplishment on behalf of all humankind. And at the other end of that spectrum, just absolute chattering terror about what this might mean for the balance of power between the two great superpowers. Whereabouts on that spectrum are you right now?
3: Oh, this is a disaster, no doubt about it. The Soviet Union, an aggressive expansionist power, has beaten the rest of the world to the ability to throw an object through space over long distances at high speed. The space age was coming one way or another, but the idea that the first people to master this technology are the worst enemies of democracy has deep implications, including the reality that the next time they put something on top of a missile, it could be a nuclear weapon instead of a basketball-sized radio. And I think that the Western response has to be to get up to speed on science and technology. We have to start finding our next generation of engineers, and we have to snap out of our torpor that I think has been an understandable response to our men coming back from Europe and Asia after World War II and doing the things that we all want to do, get jobs, raise families, but the Soviets have been busy. And now every American has to realize that North America is no longer invulnerable to Soviet attack.
0: So do you think it's fair to say the United States has been caught
3: napping somewhat? It's absolutely been caught napping. There's no way, given the gigantic industrial and technological base of the United States, that this should have happened. And I think Dr. Edward Teller is absolutely right when he said just the other day that this is a defeat worse than Pearl Harbor for the United States.
0: Is there an aspect of the court napping which is just a failure to correctly estimate Soviet technological capacity? Had the United States become accustomed to thinking of the Soviet Union as somewhat broken down and dysfunctional?
3: Yeah, there is some of that. It's I think one of the things we're probably going to find as we spend more time talking to people like Dr. von Braun and other German experts and scientists, they were not nearly as far along on the nuclear bomb as we thought they were, and the Soviets were actually much further along than we thought they were. I think we fell into a belief that German scientists are excellent and are way ahead of the world, and that Soviet scientists are backward. And, you know, the fact that we're now listening to this little beeping transmission flying over North America tells us that maybe we were wrong about that. It turns out Soviet scientists are actually pretty good. And that's a great kind of marketing tool for the Soviets to say, look, if you are, you know, I mean, we're living through a time of decolonization right now. There are a lot of newly independent countries as the former empires in the wake of World War II are all pulling back. And the Soviet marketing idea to those folks is to say, hey, you can go from absolutely broke to being in space, to being an industrial advanced power in the course of one lifetime. We're the model for super rapid development and not the Americans, not the capitalists. And, you know, that's something we're going to have to counter. I mean, I think, you know, I hope the next administration is very aggressive about Uh, space exploration. Maybe we should think about going to the moon.
0: (laughs) Well, on that thought, crazy though that sounds, is the United States obliged for both ideological and strategic reasons to up the ante here? Because if the United States fires something broadly comparable to Sputnik into orbit, I mean, it's undoubtedly a technically impressive feat, but it's not going to impress anybody at this point, is it? It would have to be something bigger, something more exciting.
3: Right. There are no trophies for being second. And I think one of the things Sputnik does for the Soviets is that it takes attention away from the fact that despite this impressive technological achievement, the Soviet Union is still a place where people stand in line for food. They stand in line for shoes. They have to wait months to order things like refrigerators. And the Americans, I think, you know, Andrew, at one point you asked if we were caught napping. We weren't so much caught napping as we were caught just enjoying the fruits of a very active and productive economy without thinking about doing something demonstrative like putting the first satellite into space, because we don't wait in line for refrigerators or ovens or cars, and the Soviets do. So I think we do need to regain the initiative here and to remind the world that the real driver of technological progress and the betterment of human lives it rests in the west and not with the soviets there is a way to look at sputnik as just a stunt but it's a highly effective stunt and it is going to lead to a military implication here for a coming arms race particularly with the delivery of nuclear weapons we've entered the space age we're about to enter the missile age and that's going to be a very very dangerous time
0: Let's just think a bit about what this does mean for President Eisenhower in terms of domestic politics. It's not so long since he was re-elected, of course, and he is embarked upon the final act of a glorious career as a, an American hero. Does this put a dent in him, the fact that this happens on his watch?
3: It absolutely does, and it's a good thing he's not running for re His polls, I suspect, are already tanking, and he's going to take a serious hit for this, And it will be laid at the feet of the Republicans. The Democrats, I'm sure, are going to move from a bomber gap to a missile gap. How is it that we're constantly caught sleeping here? And I think President Eisenhower is, of course, he's the president, and he's gonna have to own the responsibility
0: for it. Tom Nichols, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. Sputnik is the first object humankind has ever launched into space, it will certainly not be the last. Whatever the political and strategic considerations in the here and now, this is and will be for all time one of the most momentous events in human history. For a look at how our new space age might develop, I'm joined by the scientist Linda Dawson. Linda, we have now read these reports that this object that the Soviet Union has put into orbit does emit a sort of beep-beep noise that people with the appropriate receivers can actually pick up here on the ground. But beyond that, as far
4: as we know, does Sputnik actually do anything? Well, from what we know right now, Sputnik is primarily a demonstration of the capability to launch an object into space aboard a rocket. However, it does contain radio transmitters that continuously emit the beep, beep, beep sound you're talking about and are powerful enough to be picked up by radio amateurs. Sputnik specifically doesn't contain any experiments, but the Soviets report it's capable of transmitting some temperature and density measurements to the ground, demonstrating that spacecraft could supply valuable information from space. So you don't think this is just a stunt that the
0: Soviets have undertaken to prove that they can do it? Do we think there might actually be some sort of future in this kind of technology?
4: Well, you know, the United States government has been trying to launch a satellite also, primarily in terms of collecting scientific information and weather data. So just in terms of observation of the Earth, These artificial satellites are important in terms of being able to know more about where we come from but some people now are saying that it's basically a hunk of junk that anybody could launch and most people would say that they're unsure even scientists unsure of what's going to happen in the future well let's have a think about that
0: future because If this is the beginning of something, and it does feel like a bit of a, I don't know, if you will, giant leap that mankind has actually got something off the ground and into space, if we sort of allow our imaginations to go totally nuts, let's run wild for a bit, what kind of imaginable applications could these so called satellites have? Well,
4: there's the good version and the slightly scarier version. You know, the good version would be that we would be able to launch more and more experiments into space and perhaps more and more objects that are similar so they could perform experiments while orbiting Earth. The scary part is perhaps there could be uh, weapons that could be launched into space and we're talking about instead of rockets, we're talking ballistic missiles. So some people are concerned that this is going to make a difference in the Cold War.
0: This thing clearly does have the capacity to transmit, even though it's not very much at the moment. Is it imaginable that at some point something like Sputnik could transmit something more, I don't know, complicated, like actual radio or television broadcast, or is that just fanciful?
4: Well, you know, technology moves quickly. And so I think that that kind of transmission more and more types of data, in ter- uh, not only audio but video, is possible in the future. And so when you look forward into the future, we think about humans perhaps being able to be launched into space, perhaps observations that have to do with not only science but military surveillance might be something that it was possible with Sputnik-type satellites. So if it's
0: not completely fanciful to think of satellites broadcasting radio, television, other communications from space, is it possible to imagine that at some point there could be a permanently orbiting habitat that people might actually
4: be living on in orbit? Well, now you're talking science fiction, I think, (laughs) because there's an awful lot of technology that would have to be discovered and demonstrated in order for anything like that to happen. But as they say, science fiction often drives technology, as does the military. So I would say anything's possible. Let's pick a point
0: in the future for some, you know, completely random and arbitrary reason. Let's think ahead to exactly 65 years from now. What do you think the heavens might look like at that point? Might there be as many as, I don't know, five or six of these things in orbit by then?
4: Well, five or six or many more than that, because we might find that our space is the next frontier. And so being the next frontier, you learn a lot about Earth by looking back at it. So I think that the interest will be there in terms of science, particularly. But, you know, I think military is not far behind. And human exploration, again, is a possibility there's
0: one other danger that i think we do have to contemplate and it it seems like a fairly fundamental one and i may not be anybody's idea of an astronomer or a physicist but i do understand that what goes up must at some point come down now sputnik itself as we understand it is not terribly big and not terribly heavy though you'd still notice it i guess if it came through your roof from that height is there any possible danger attached to the prospect of sputnik or something like it falling out of the sky can we control where they land well
4: scientists don't have enough information to know how long an object like sputnik the lifetime will last so it will, at some point, lose its ability to stay in orbit around the Earth. And when it does that, it is going to come back eventually through the dense atmosphere. But as it's going so fast, and as it comes back through the atmosphere, it will burn up upon reaching those layers of the atmosphere. So, no, you can't predict where, but it's going to burn up before it reaches Earth. Linda, as we understand it, this thing
0: can transmit a fairly primitive stream of beeps which can be received by people on Earth with the correct equipment. And I understand that you are among those people who has heard the beeps directly from Sputnik. How did that happen?
4: Yes, my family was very interested in being able to go to an observatory nearby And this observatory was in New Hampshire and was able to hear the Sputnik transmissions as it traveled over the observatory. So for me, just hearing that was exciting and I think inspired me in terms of what is possible. But also, quite honestly, I felt a little scared that somebody else had gotten there first and just not knowing what was going to happen in the future and did
0: the beeps appear to you to be saying anything was there any kind of sinister communist code
4: going on here i don't think so i it just seemed like an automaton you know that kind of thing like a robot just sending repetitive beeps so i didn't really think much about that
0: well that's what they want you to think linda dawson thank you for joining us That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week with the second episode of our historical series, which reflects on the Easter Rising in Dublin in 1916. And of course, look out for the Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces the Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle Magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.